You turn to Acts chapter 9, and uh, let me remind you that we're in a series called Encounters with God. The subtitle of it is Stories of Grace Overcoming Guilt, and we're nearing the end of that series. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul this morning, and then next week we're going to be looking at John and how he encountered the risen Christ at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And then after John, so three weeks from now, I'm going to preach a sermon in which I'm going to bring a lot of these themes together and cap this series off for us. And then we're going to move on to another series in the book of Colossians. And I'm really excited about that. I've been doing some study about that, studying of that ahead of time. But now this, in this series, we're, we've been looking at individuals and how God has confronted them, spoken to them right in the middle of their situations and circumstances. Because we want to know what it is to be encountered by God or to encounter God. And we see here in Acts chapter 9, Paul has this encounter with God. And we, we think of it as a conversion story. The story of Paul on the road to Damascus is well known. It's probably the most famous conversion story in history. In fact, that phrase, a Damascus road experience, has worked its way into our culture as being a transformative time in the life of a person. Like you, you, you even read on the news, people talk about, this was my Damascus road experience. It's been described as a turning point, like a 180 degree turn, a, a crisis moment, a watershed time when someone goes, they're going one direction and then they go the, the opposite direction. That's a conversion or a Damascus road experience. And we're going to be looking at Paul's conversion experience. But before we do, I think we need to address a common idea that many people have about a conversion experience. Uh, a lot of times people think of a conversion experience uh, like this. There's a person, say a person who's far away from God, far away from religion. Maybe they're even running away from God or religion, not don't want anything to do with it. Uh, maybe they are wallowing in sin. Maybe they have something on their conscience. Their, their soul is on pins and needles. They're, they're tortured inside themselves. And they're seeking for peace and relief. And at some point, as they hobble along this path of mis misery, they reach this crisis, this turning point where everything changes. And they find this relief and peace after they had been searching and tortured and going away from God. Now they've suddenly turned back into the safe fold of religion. That's what we tend to think of when we think of a conversion. But this is not what happened to Paul. This is not Paul's experience. Why? Because Paul was already very religious. Paul was not running away from religion. He was actually running toward religion. Like, he was a pious, devout, sincere young man, late 20s, early 30s, about the time that he was traveling on this road to Damascus. And so we can't say of Paul's conversion experience that here's a man who's wallowing in sin with a tortured conscience, running away from God, trying to escape, yet somehow tortured and seeking peace. No, here was a man who was settled and secure in what he was doing. I mean, he was on the right path. He was earnest and devout. He can trace his lineage, his ancestry, back to the tribe of Benjamin. Educationally, he had sat at the feet of a premier scholar, Gamaliel. Religiously, he was part of the strictest group in Judaism at that time, known as the Pharisees, 
who are very big on keeping every detail of the law and making more laws than, in fact, were in the Old Testament and keeping them. As an older man, looking back on his life when he was younger, Paul could write, and he said this honestly, pertaining to the law, the first two-thirds of the Bible, blameless. He kept it. Paul was not an irreligious man. Paul was a very religious man. And so Paul's conversion, contrary to the way we tend to think about conversions, had nothing to do with getting more religious. But you say, hey, what about this? Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Well, that sounds like a crook. Well, Paul had good scriptural precedent for this. I mean, Paul, like, like a good Jew, knew and loved the Old Testament, which gave promises of a coming age in which there would be the resurrection of the just and of the unjust. He knew about Elijah, and he knew about that great prophet that oversaw the slaughter of 400 false prophets of Baal. I mean, religious zeal in the Old Testament was often marked by the putting to death of false prophets. So Paul, in persecuting these followers of Jesus, this renegade band of people who were worshiping the imposter claimant to deity, this peasant from Nazareth, Jesus, he had good precedent for opposing them. This was not out of an insatiable desire for cruelty, but his, his devout desire to be a very religious man. And so, when you picture it, Paul, don't picture a snarling, fanged, drooling, moral monster. It wasn't him at all. Picture a sincere, devout young man who is making every effort to uphold the law of God. So, Paul's conversion experience, that what I'm saying is it is not... Getting religion, or getting more religion, or finding religion, it was, he was already very religious. Well, why is this important for us to know? It's important because many of us here, like Paul, are very religious too. I mean, you're, you're in church on a beautiful Sunday morning. Here you are dressed up on the Lord's Day. Many of you have very distinct approaches to right and wrong, consistent religious practices and political values. We have a book, and we have a building that we worship in. in. And it's possible for us to assume that conversion is needed for only people who don't think like us who don't share the same religious practices, who don't vote like we do. And we could easily overlook the fact that it was not Paul the terrible that was converted, it was Paul the tidy. It wasn't Paul the liberal who was converted, it was Paul the conservative. It wasn't Paul the Sundays at the lake, it was Paul the churchgoer. He was a very religious man. Well, you might say, well, that's good because I'm not very religious. I'm spiritual, but not religious. I know that seems to be a very safe-sounding place for many in my generation who may be turned off by the structures and strictures of 
organized religion. But even for, even for such people that may be you, you do value spirituality and community and connectiveness and maybe even do some things that border on religious practices like meditation and uh, mindfulness and a great respect for nature. I mean, we are all very religious in our own way. And so that leaves us with the question, if it wasn't more religion that Paul gained, what did happen on the road to Damascus? Like, what was this experience? If it wasn't gaining religion because he was already religion, religious, what happened to this devout young man on that day when he saw this blinding light that outshone the Mediterranean sun when his body hit the pavement on the road to Damascus and we heard a voice from heaven and when he responded to the voice with the question, who are you? What happened to Paul? And we're going to walk through this in three parts. We're going to look at who he met, what he learned, and how he changed. All right? So Paul's conversion experience in three parts. Who he met, that's his encounter. What he learned, that's his realization. And how he changed, that's his transformation. Who he met, what he learned, and how he changed. First of all, his encounter, who he met. And here it is, in answering the question, okay, how did Paul change so dramatically? What was this conversion? If it wasn't gaining religion, what was it? Here it is. Paul met Jesus. Simply, literally, taking Acts 9 at face value, Paul met Jesus. Or more, actually, more precisely, Jesus met Paul. Because Paul wasn't actually looking for Jesus. Paul wasn't a seeker. He wasn't expecting anything except to arrive at Damascus with the arrest warrants of of followers of Jesus in his hands. But here it is. He meant Jesus. It wasn't this merely a warm and wonderful feeling that bubbled up inside his heart, or it wasn't this intellectual paradigm shift in which he had this aha moment. It was he met a person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, to, to a secular or skeptical person, a secular or skeptical-minded person might be grasping for different explanations of this. Okay, so we have this record of a man who met a, a, a Jesus who was obviously dead by this point. So, really, what happened? And, and people speculate. They say, well, maybe it's that Paul had some religious ecstasy. And after all, this is what happens in many religions. Someone has this out-of-body experience, this ecstasy, in which they're convinced that they, they see something that, that wasn't really there, and it's, it's such a profound, dramatic uh, experience for them that they have this conversion. People speculate, well, maybe that's what happened to Paul. He had this religious ecstasy. After all, he was a very religious man, so a religious ecstasy would not be surprising for Paul. Well, let me just, let me just say this. It would not be surprising if Paul, what Paul saw was a vision of God high and lifted up like Isaiah had, like we looked at a few weeks ago. That would not have been very surprising. It would not have been incredibly surprising if Paul had this vision of God surrounded by this beautiful rainbow, much like Ezekiel had. Why? Because these are things that Paul was familiar with. Typically, religious ecstasies happen in response to something that a religious person is already expecting, much like a Hindu might have a vision of Krishna or a, maybe a Roman Catholic would, would, would seem to see tears coming down a statue of Mary. These are things that they're expecting. Paul was not expecting to see Jesus of Nazareth. This was not within Paul's plausibility structure. 
that he would see a man that, whom he believed to be dead. And not just dead, but a man that he believed to be a dead imposter. Paul was not expecting this at all. This was no religious ecstasy. This wasn't a seizure. It wasn't a sunstroke. Paul met Jesus. And this divine encounter gave Paul these two truths. First, that the Jesus whom he thought was dead was actually alive. And the Jesus that he thought was an evil imposter was actually God himself. And you see this here in the text. Verse 4 of chapter 9. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now Saul knows enough to know that whatever has the power to send a sun, uh, a light that is brighter than the sun, down to him and speak to him in a voice that knocks him to the ground, Paul's a smart enough guy to know that whatever that is, it's got to be God. But when Paul asks, who are you? What response does he get? I am Jesus. This completely changed Paul's mind about things. The man he thought was dead was alive because someone is saying, I am Jesus. And the Jesus he thought was an imposter was God because the voice from heaven has got to be the voice of God who's saying, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, this is really foreign to our way of thinking about a conversion experience because we tend to think maybe a conversion experience will happen when someone embraces a new set of rules for life. I'm going to find this new set of rules, I'm going to live my life this way, and my life is going to change. Or suddenly I have this big idea that changes everything about me. Or maybe a new standard of living, maybe your conversion experience, maybe in, in better health or better finances. But, but this is none of those things. It was a person. You know, people have talked about the significance of meeting a famous person in real life. It could be a sports player. Think about who you'd want to meet in real life. Famous author, famous actor. There's something about meeting someone in real life. Like, you're not just content to read their books or watch their movies or, or to hear their political speeches on, on, watch their political speeches on TV. You want to meet them in person. I mean, we know that the, the power of a personal encounter. Can you imagine the power of a personal encounter with Jesus, the divine Son of God? That's what happened to Paul. And we see this throughout the, the New Testament when later on in the book of Acts, after Paul's been converted, he's in jail. The jail, because of an earthquake, breaks open. And the jailer comes in and, and he asks, what must I do to be saved? Paul doesn't say, well, I have a 12-step program for you. He doesn't say, I've got a really brilliant idea that changed my life. No, it was a person. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, that's who Paul met. That's encount his encounter. But second, what he learned, his realization. Because this divine encounter with Jesus is quickly followed by a personal realization, and it comes in two parts, all right? I'll give them to you ahead of time. This personal realization, first, Paul had to realize that his efforts were worth nothing. And second, that Jesus is worth everything. His efforts were worth nothing, and Jesus is worth 
everything. So we have this divine encounter, who Paul met, and then this realization, what he learned, that his efforts were worth nothing and that Jesus was worth everything. Remember we had said about Paul that even as a relatively young man, he had achieved a lot in life. He was very religious. Later on, he says that he actually exceeded his peers in religion. He, he was competitive. He went beyond everybody else. He did more. He fasted more. He prayed longer. He gave more. He traveled farther. I mean, he did more than everybody else that were his peers in terms of religion. So he had achieved, even as a, a relatively young man, he had achieved a lot in life. And these achievements was where Paul found meaning in life, true significance. This is what Paul was seeking for. But in meeting Jesus, Paul had to realize something about his greatest achievements. Or Paul's greatest achievements. They were in the terms of religion. I mean, he was on his way to do something very religious. Put the, uh, the heretics in prison. But then, this divine voice from heaven say, is saying, Why are you persecuting me? Which tells Paul that his achievements are not doing anything for God at all. Here, here's what happened. Paul had to realize that his efforts were worth nothing, and that left him completely shattered. You see later that Paul admits that he had been trying to gain a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What Paul had been, Paul had been looking for this deep sense of meaning and fulfillment and significance in his own works. And this pursuit is not just a pursuit for religious people. Everybody does this. There's an author and life coach, Tony Robbins. He calls this a search for significance. He said this in a speech. We all need to feel important, special, or unique. You can get it by making more money or by being more spiritual, whatever it takes. Like this is something that everybody is searching for in all, their different, all, all sorts of different ways. But Paul realized in this one encounter with Jesus that the very thing that he had sought all his meaning and significance in was suddenly shattered. Why? Because it was not helping God. God himself was saying, you're persecuting me. This is against me. There was a famous preacher, George Whitfield. As a young man in London in the 1700s, he was extremely devout. He was a student at Oxford. And he became part of a group called the Holy Club. And the members, they would keep a diary. Every day they would write, they would scrutinize their actions and condemn themselves for any fault. They would fast every Wednesday and Friday. And in his journal, Whitfield writes, I began to live by rule and to pick up the very fragments of my time that not a moment of it might be lost. Whether I ate or drank or whatsoever I did, I endeavored to do all to the glory of God. As a young man, here's this preacher in the 1700s. He's doing everything he can to be rigorous and devout and spiritually minded. But he also began to realize that, he writes, a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. He goes on to write, How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books lest he should find himself bankrupt? That was Paul's experience. 
It's a shattering realization to, to, to suddenly, for it to suddenly dawn on you that everything that you have sought for, everything that you have tried to find meaning in, pops just like a bubble. It disappears just like a mirage. And yet, at the same moment, and this is the beautiful thing, Paul found himself completely fulfilled. Why? Because at the same time he realized that all his efforts had been entirely misplaced, he suddenly found the right place to put them, where they could truly be significant. Because he found the object of all his hopes and desires were not in his works, but in Jesus. He said, Paul had to realize that his own efforts were worth nothing and that Jesus was worth everything. That left him both shattered and fulfilled at the same time. Shattered with reference to his works and his efforts and his own ambitions to find significance and meaning in life, but fulfilled because now in Jesus, he finds true meaning and fulfillment and significance. At the same time, simultaneously at those words, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. He realizes the one that he has been militating against is actually Jesus, the fulfillment of the scriptures that Paul had so loved and and obeyed and learned. Paul had to realize that there is no greater treasure than Jesus. If this Jesus who is alive, as he realized there on the Damascus Road, is the Messiah, is the promised Savior, then all of Paul's hopes have been realized. This is the Jesus who had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the Jesus that had said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And in this Jesus, Paul found life and fulfillment. This was the Jesus who said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that's why Paul would go on to write in Philippians chapter 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what Paul discovered. His own works, worthless. Jesus, worth everything. My friend, could it be that you have never been truly fulfilled in Christ because you've never really abandoned all your own achievements? Very religious people have a hard time accepting this. Very religious people like, like you and me who can so easily assume that this is why God's happy with us. But Paul's conversion had nothing to do with getting more religion. It had everything to do with finding the right person or actually being found by the right person. Jesus Christ, all his joy and delight and meaning were to be found in him. None of it was to be found in his own efforts. In fact, Paul realized that, that he was actually found. He might have been looking for something, but he had to realize that someone was looking for him. 
I told you Paul wasn't a seeker, but he was being sought. I came across a fictional story a while ago about an orphan who had this magical knack for finding lost things. And he would feel this kind of tugging sensation that would be drawing him toward whatever was lost, and he'd be able to find it. He found sunglasses and keys and contact lenses and sweaters. And if he concentrated hard enough, he could feel these things tugging on him, pulling him in the right direction. But the more he began to find things, and eventually friends and relatives began to pick up on the fact that, well, this is really useful. This guy can help me find my stuff. And, and he, would, he would go around and help people. And, and the more he helped people and the more he found things, the more he had the sense that there was something lost that he could not find. As the story goes, one day he even found a boy, a young boy had been kidnapped, returned the boy to his relieved mother. And after this, he went back to his own room that night and lay in bed. He asked, where am I? He crossed his hands in front of him, held onto his shoulders. Concentrate hard, he thought. Where are you? Everything felt blank and quiet. He couldn't feel a tug. He squeezed his eyes shut and let the question bubble up. Where did you go? Come find me. I'm over here. Come find me. What a picture of the human condition. We're so good at finding things. How to make money. How to build relationships. But we're so utterly lost. What we need is not to find, but to be found. And that's precisely why what happened to Paul cannot be explained in terms of getting more religion. Because religion is primarily about what people do. Christianity teaches it's not about what people do, it's about what Jesus has done. That's the gospel, that's the good news. It's not about our efforts, it's not about our zeal, it's not about what we could achieve and accomplish on our own, it's about someone who already achieved and already accomplished and already did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That's why you can't explain any true conversion experience in terms of just getting more religion, becoming more zealous, making a 180 degree turn, having this aha moment, having a paradigm shift, because that's not sufficient. We need to be found. It was a personal encounter with Jesus that changed Paul, and that's the only thing that can change anyone from death to life, from despair to joy, from being lost to being found. So who Paul met, his encounter, he met Jesus. What Paul realized, what he learned, this realization that his own efforts were worthless and that Jesus was worth everything. And third, how he changed, his transformation. So let's look at this briefly. We look at Acts chapter 9, and we see that after Paul had this experience, this encounter with Jesus, uh, in this encounter with Jesus, Jesus says to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men traveling with him were speechless, but Saul rises from the ground. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Paul became blind. The moment he could see spiritually was the moment he became blind physically, although his sight would return later to him. Paul does exactly what he was told. We're not. Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts, doesn't delve into Paul's mind here, but he does tell us the very first thing that Paul begins to do in verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, what is Paul, the religious zealot, the persecutor of followers of Jesus, what is he going to say now? 
about Jesus. Here's what he says. He is the Son of God. That's a radical change. For Paul to say something like that means everything changed about Paul. And he describes this in one of his letters to the city of the Christians living in Corinth. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. That was Paul's condition. Everything became new for Paul. Everything was a radical, complete transformation. And to describe every component of Paul's changed life, we would require a lifetime of study of the letters of Paul in which he describes what happens to a person when they believe in Jesus. But let me summarize in just three, three points here. Paul had a new way of thinking. He had a new way of thinking. He says in 2 Corinthians, the, the first part there, that we have the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16, we have the mind of Christ. It's a completely new way of thinking. We see this illustrated when Paul is on a journey and he visits the city of Athens. And he sees these ancient temples. He's in the place of, of philosophical profundity, and he's dialoguing with these people here. But what Paul sees is, is not these marvelous structures, is not the intricate architecture, is not the beautiful sculpture. What he sees is a people who are lost without Jesus. His heart is grieved. He's troubled within him. Why? Because he has a new way of thinking. He has new values. He has a new mindset. Second, he has a new way of loving. And our thinking and our loving are very closely intertwined. Why? Because what we find most lovable, our minds find most reasonable. Someone has put it this way. And what our minds find most reasonable, our wills find most doable. So be careful what you love. But Paul's loves were totally transformed. He says later on, the love of Christ controls us. Why does the love of Christ control Paul? Because Jesus loved him so much he died for him. And my friends, that love changes everything about you. That love allows you to love people that are really unlovable. Well, because it's a supernatural love. It's a love that doesn't come just because someone is, pleases you in some way, but because you've been loved more deeply than you can even imagine. That's how your love is transformed. That's how Paul's love was transformed a new way of thinking, a new way of loving, but also a new way of willing. A new way of willing. Paul loved to identify himself as this. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he found a new master. A master that would not enslave him like sin did, but a master who liberates him. That's what Jesus does. Paul would write to the Philippians. He says that we have, because of our relationship with God, someone working, God is working within us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This encounter with Jesus, this radical conversion, this true change in Paul's life resulted in transformed thinking, transformed loving, transformed willing. Everything about him changed. And this takes us to this question that I, wanna, I want you to consider have you had such an encounter with Jesus? I don't mean, do you consider yourself religious? That's not the question. I don't mean, were you baptized at a certain age? Or have a date written on an old Bible lying somewhere in a stack in your house? That's not the question. It means, I'm asking, has Jesus met you? 
It's not a matter of becoming more religious. It's a matter of a person confronting you and causing you to realize that all your efforts in light of his effort is nothing, and then all that matters is what he has done for you. Has it happened to you? My burden, my concern for so many of us here is that we, because we are so religious, we can be easily blinded to the fact that we are in desperate need of a change. Just like Paul was, and he didn't know it. It could happen to you even if you're not looking for it. How does this happen? It won't be a voice, an audible voice that you could hear. You won't be driving down Clinton Street and suddenly see this flash of light that will cast you to the ground. Here's how it comes. As you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. For me, this was when I was a young child, realizing that I needed Jesus to be my Savior. For many of you, it happened as an adult. Many of you have shared with me how this happened to you, to my joy and delight. Let me address some groups of people here. First of all, those of you who are religious, who think that you're perhaps a Christian, but then you may realize that there's no merit at all in your religious activity because of the worth of Christ. It could be that you are in need of calling out to Christ for the very first time. It could be that you're here and you don't consider yourself religious at all. But you realize you too need Jesus. My friend, he died for you. But believe on him. You could be here and you're a believer. You're, you're thinking, I, I know, I, I know Jesus. But there's someone that you're burdened for, that you want to trust in Christ. Let me, let me encourage you, my brother or sister. If there's hope for the apostle Paul, there's hope for that person, that loved one. So take courage and continue praying. And finally, believer, you're, you're here and, and you're, you maybe don't have someone on your mind that needs to trust the Lord, but you want to grow in the Lord. This is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Like, do you, don't lose that sense of wonder at what Jesus has done for you. That, that sense of realizing that all your worth is found in Him and none is found in you. And continue to live in the wonder of what Christ has done for you. And so that whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, your story can be a story of grace overcoming guilt.